Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have with me, James Warwick, the podcast where each week I sit down with a different guest as we discuss their career and unwrap the story behind the worst gift they've ever been given. Now, this week's episode is a bit of a funny one because I actually recorded this back in July of 2020 and I had a slight hard drive issue and I honestly thought that this interview had been lost and I didn't quite have the heart to tell Lee that I didn't have the interview anymore. So I I sort of just stayed quiet and I thought, well, if he gets in touch, I'll have to be a bit honest and say, oh, I think I've lost the interview. But I sort of stayed quiet and nothing really came of it. But by some sheer luck in the week, I was going through some other folders and I found the audio and I thought, ah, the forgotten interview. So joining me this week, (laughs) better late than never, is award-winning film writer, director and producer Lee Chambers. We sat down to discuss his career in film, including a near-death experience on set, which is well worth a listen. As well as all of that, he obviously lets me in on the worst gift he's ever been given. So Lee, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Really great to have you on. It's fantastic to be here. I'm really looking forward to finding out all about your career. So how did your career in the film industry begin? I think for most people who are filmmakers, they start as kids, right? They, they have an imagination as a kid and they're, uh, they get to playing in the sandbox and they have the toys. And, you know, I'm, I'm the generation where, uh, you know, Star Wars came out when I was a, I was a kid and uh, I had all the Star Wars toys and you flew around uh, with the uh, Millennium Falcon and all that stuff. And, and it, it, it just, it, it was a good time, I think, to be a kid in that in that genre of, of movies that came out. Uh, I mean, the 60s and 70s were great, but I found that they were grittier, whatever. And then suddenly in 77, Star Wars comes out, and it's beca- it, it became the not only the blockbuster uh, that George Lucas created, but it, it started this whole thing. I think think more, a lot, a lot of kid movies and, and adventure movies, and I think that really inspired me a lot. Yeah, because I guess Star Wars for its time was just so different to what had been out before. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you've got 2001, A Space Odyssey, but it's not really a kid movie, right? <laughs> Whereas uh, suddenly you have a, a giant walking furball in, uh, in Chewbacca and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Ewoks and all these different things that, uh, that kids gravitated towards. And obviously, George Lucas uh, smartly held on to the merchandising rights and made billions of dollars from toys and all that kind of stuff. It kind of created that that market as well. I, as a, as a filmmaker, I mean, that obviously is an inspiration. I think the film that uh, really inspired me and, and, and made me really think, ah, you know, I'd love to be able to do that was Blade Runner, which is 1982. Oh, and I saw that one in the cinema when I shouldn't have, cause it was a restricted movie <laughs> and kind of, kind of snuck in and, and got a chance to see it. And, uh, and it's interesting now watching Blade Runner cause it's inspired so many other movies. But if you look back and watch it, uh, it still holds its own and with all the, they didn't have CG effects. They had a lot of physical effects. Uh, you can't just click and Photoshop stuff. You know what I mean? They had to do things in camera and it's still very impressive of film today, which is uh, kudos to uh, Ridley Scott and the team that made that movie. So in terms of your filmmaking, were you always behind the camera or did you ever have an episode in front of the camera, shall we say, before you moved to uh, directing? Uh, well, you know, as a kid, uh, when you know, after Star Wars and after Blade Runner, uh, filmmaking, uh, being born and raised in Canada, where 
you know, where I was in a small town, you didn't really, you know, to be a filmmaker was kind of a lofty thing. It was thing, they did that in Hollywood. That wasn't something that we did. But I remember the local uh, library had a video camera that you could rent. And I think it was about 15 years old and, and you could rent this video camera and, uh, and we rented it for the weekend and you couldn't get it out of my hands. I mean, I was just <laughs> playing with it and, but I was in front of the camera behind the camera. And, uh, it, it, you know, when I was, a, when I was a teenager, I did, uh, you know, acting, I acted on, uh, in, in, in plays and stuff like that on stage. And I enjoyed that part of it, but I enjoyed the, the creating from scratch process of, from being behind the camera, I think. I think more. I mean, I'm a ham. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a class clown. I'm a, you know, get me in front of a camera and I'll, and I'll, and I'll entertain, but there's something about directing and writing stuff where you have, where you create a whole new world from, from, from scratch and to be able to control that world is awesome. In terms of the directing, what do you feel the biggest lessons that you learned were when you first started out? The biggest things are, I think a lot of people start off with just tremendous amounts of enthusiasm. Yeah but they don't really know where to begin. And so I get this a lot now where there's young filmmakers who are like, they just want to go and make a feature and you've <laughs> never even made a short. And it's like, that's just a big mistake. I mean, learn how to make something smaller and then build your way up. And uh, so I think when I started, one of the things for me that was great was I had people around me who were smarter than me and they, uh, they guided me along in the process of making a film a lot faster than if I just tried to do it on my own. I mean, if anybody's made a film before, you can copy that process. So if you can learn the process, meaning a lot of young filmmakers, they write a script and then they go and shoot it and they don't actually go through the process of developing the the script properly. So it's got on the nose dialogue or the plot's got holes in it. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of, it's the script is there, but it's in a rough form and they haven't really developed it properly. Um, and that goes for every department, right? I mean, a, a film needs to have, you know, a good script, good actors, good production design, good sound, good camera work, you know, good posts, good music. I mean, everything has to be really good in order for it to be a really good movie. I wondered with all of your experience, does it make it more difficult for you to watch films and enjoy them because you know the creative process that goes into creating them? I get that question a lot. And it's interesting because you would think that I would be too busy ripping it apart as I'm watching it. The answer to that is if it's a really good film, meaning uh, all of the elements are kind of there. There's, it's obvious, there's, a, there's a good script, good actors, good story, uh, good sound, good, camera work, whatever. If I'm into it and I'm involved and invested in the character's journey, I get lost in a film like anybody else. Um, if suddenly uh, I'm broken from that and the suspension of disbelief disappears by maybe a poor actor or I don't believe what's going on or, or the, you know, they've created a world and suddenly they seem to have broken from it in a weird way or it's whatever, I, then I might pull myself away and watch a certain element. I might just listen to the score. I might just look at the camera work and say, well, I don't like the story, but the camera work and the production design are good. But if it's a, a well done film, then I get, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll cry. You know, I'm, I'm man enough to admit that I'll cry during a, a, a movie and, uh, or, you know, and laugh my ass off like, like, like anybody else. Touching on those elements. I know you've, you've been a judge on several film festival panels and you've also been a, a reviewer of movies uh, for newspapers. So are you looking for those same elements you look for when you're watching a film for entertainment as you do when you're watching it as a reviewer or a critic? 
Well, you know, I, I wrote for the Yorkshire Evening Post for three years, and I was on a, a guest on a, on a radio show once a week uh, uh, in uh, Yorkshire, in England. And I, I, I never really considered myself a critic, and I always hated that word because it always sounds like it, I'm trying to find something wrong. Uh-huh. And I always considered myself more of a reviewer. Like, I, I watched the movie, I liked it or didn't like it, and there's reasons why. And uh, I always found that, um, I watched everything, you know, for, it was a three year period where I saw everything. I never, ever walked out on a movie, even though there's some that I wanted to, but I would enjoy, I would just enjoy the movie. And then at the end I would decide how I felt about it, but I would never went in with a criteria. Like uh-huh. I've got to nail them on this or nail them on that. What was interesting was that I always found that out of all the movies I watched, there was always a, a an upper edge of films that were just spectacular and then there was always this bottom edge, which were spectacularly bad. <laughs> and the hardest thing was the middle ground. There's movies where you liked it and it was enjoyable. But then two days later, someone goes, what movie did you last see? And you're going, I can't remember. Uh, like, that's actually almost worse, right? Because yeah. it didn't really make an impact. Whereas some movies make an impact where you're thinking about it for days and days. And that could be a good movie or a bad movie. And someone says, what did you see? If it was really bad, you'll tell them how bad it was. But uh, I have had situations where I can't remember the movie I just saw because it wasn't memorable. It was, it passed the two hours and maybe I, I didn't hate it, didn't love it, but it's kind of just middle ground of meh, you know? Pretty mediocre. Mediocre. There's lots of mediocre, you know what I mean? It's hard to really make a good movie. I don't think any filmmaker goes into making a bad movie. I think they go in and you try really hard. I mean, you go back to Blade Runner. I mean, you, you, there was all sorts of problems on Blade Runner. I mean, you know, Harrison Ford didn't like half the dialogue and didn't like the voiceover and they, you know, and this crew grumbled and whatever. And, but they, you know, they, you know, you've got, it's a team sport, right? Filmmaking is a team sport. So you have, whether it's 25 people or 200 people making a, a movie, everybody has to be giving their A game. And if any one department kind of fails, that could make the whole movie fall apart, right? You're just casting the wrong actor in, in the movie could bring everybody else's performances down. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Anything can go wrong. I wanted to move on to some of your own work, Lee. And in 2012, you had the movie The Sum of Random Chance, which I know is based on a novel written by yourself. So I wonder what the process was there. In, did you write the book first? Did you always intend on it being a movie? You know, it's, it's, it's backwards, actually. Uh, the oh, Sum really? of Random Chance... Uh, the summer random chance started, I think it was in 2007. It was a screenplay. I co-wrote it with a friend of mine and, uh, and I wanted to make that as a movie. I went to the Cannes film festival in 2008. I talked to distributors, whatever. And all the distributors said, you can't, uh, do your first movie as a drama based because you drama based movies really need top actors to help sell it from a distribution point of view. Ah. So I kind of put the summer of random chance off to the side. And then I uh, co-wrote uh, a screenplay called the Pineville heist uh-huh. as a thriller. Uh, and that movie just in a weird way, accidentally I drafted a book version of the screenplay that attracted the investors to the project. And it was we, it was released in 2016. Then I went backwards, pulled out the Summer of Random Chance screenplay, novelized that. Ah. Um, so, so there were screenplays first, and then novelized. And the great thing is, is they are um, a screenplay is uh, a, a architectural 
document for making a movie. It's, it's not something the average person reads. No. It's producers, writers, directors, actors, that kind of stuff read a screenplay. And a screenplay has the specific information to how to make the movie. It's not like a novel. So it's missing thoughts. It's missing a lot of the color. It's missing all these things. So imagine an architectural drawing where you can see the structure of it, but you can't see the color of the sofa and the color of the walls. So that's what the production team come in. You bring in people and they build up from the screenplay and, and realize the director's, uh, the director's vision. So what was interesting was I took the screenplay and knowing that I was going to direct the movie, um, I added all the color that I saw as a director. So the screenplay and the book became like the book became a companion piece. So the actor reads the screenplay as the blueprint. And then if you want to, get more insights to the thought process or, you know, you want to feel more of the, how I feel it as a director. Uh, they, you can read the book version as well. I don't know any um, independent uh, feature films that have book versions of their movies, right? You know, big movies do, but you know, small, small little independent movies, you know, rarely, if, if at all, really have a book version of their movie. I understand that you had a couple of near death experiences on, on film sets in the past. Oh, who hasn't? Who hasn't almost died on a film set? Um, have you ever been on a film set? Have you ever have you ever shot stuff? I mean, I, I only like student stuff. I've never been on a, on a professional set. Okay, well, you can die on a professional set just as easy as a student set. Um, I was, uh, yeah, the, 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 the craziest one was the uh, a, a BBC uh, sitcom called The League of Gentlemen. Which, I know, it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which uh, had a couple, uh, I think, two or three seasons. And I worked on season two. And in season two, they burned down the uh, the little shop on the hill. And uh, I was asked to go and sit uh, up in see, the, the little shop that they had, which was on the Yorkshire Moors, uh, was only two, three, three-sided. And the back was open because it wasn't a real, it was fake. It was a movie set on, on in the middle of nowhere. And I had to go and sit on the top of the this piece of wood with a uh, machine that actually makes uh, a little canister that makes smoke and to make smoke come out of the chimney. And they did this wide shot um, of a horse and buggy rolling down the hill in the beginning of season two. And you see smoke coming out of the hill. Now what's interesting is nowadays they would just CG. I mean, yeah. you just, you know what I mean? They would just add smoke and CG, but they did it as a physical on camera effect. And while I was up there, I had a walkie talkie and, uh, I was up in the rafters of this, uh, behind the set. And, uh, I had this little smoke machine and it caught while they were shooting, they actually called action and there, everybody's, you know, 300 yards away. And, far away with the camera and it's a wide shot. So smoke is coming out of the chimney, but uh, some of the material from the smoke, smoke thing, the canister lit the back, uh, the black cloth around it on fire. And I literally, I, and then I accidentally knocked the walkie talkie down and then I'm pulling this, I basically I'm pulling this cloth down and it's flames around me and I got myself down, you know, it was 10 feet in the air and climbed down the ladder and the grass around it started on fire and I was trying to put it all out and I literally just put it on the fire and I heard over the walkie talkie cut and (laughs) I heard the AD say that we're going to set up for, wait, we're going to might set up for another take. And I said in the walkie talkie to the uh, stand, standby props guy, I said, can you come back here, please? And he said, uh, we're about, just hold on. We might go for another take. And I said, no, I need you to get back here, please. <laughs> and he came around the corner, you know, ran all the way back to the set 
he came around the corner and he saw me there. I had black soot on my face. There was a 10 feet area of charred grass and the black cloth smoldering. And he, we looked at each other for a minute, didn't say anything. And then over the walkie talkie, we heard the first AD say, that's, I think that's a wrap. We're going to move on. And I said to the, the standby props guy, you're damn fucking right. We're moving on <laughs> because I am not going back up there to do it again. Right. I, like it was, it was the closest I was to actually dying on the set to be burned alive on the set of league of gentlemen. Crazy story. Absolutely Never crazy. True. Crazy. But I'm glad you're here to tell the tale. The worst gift I've ever been given was uh, I remember getting a frying pan set Nice. Um, someone got me this frying pan set and, and it's like, okay, you think, well, why is that so bad? What's so wrong with a frying pan set? Everybody wants to fry something. The problem was that I could tell that the, the, the frying pan, the main, main frying pan already had scratches on it, which meant, and I could tell that, the, and there was a little bit of food, like crusty food. I'm thinking somebody bought it, used it, repackaged it and gave it to me no, as a gift. That's awful. A used frying pan set. We mentioned Christmas a bit earlier on. Have you ever snuck a peek at a gift under the tree when you shouldn't have done? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it, it's, I can talk about this now, but for a long time I couldn't because it was oh. the, this, this big hidden secret. When I was a kid, uh, my parents would go away camping and stuff and they would, they were going away for the weekend and my brother and I were rummaging around the house trying to look for gifts. Right. You know, so yeah. it's like, I don't know, it's October and we're like, I wonder if they <laughs> bought anything for us. And so we were, we were looking around and my parents had a waterbed and my brother and I thought it's very heavy, right? Because of all sure, the water. Yeah, yeah. And my brother and I wedged this bed up and stuck a book underneath and then another book. And then we got a flashlight and we were looking underneath the bed and my brother goes, there's presents under there. I can see <laughs> stuff. And so we raised the bed up a foot and then slid this box out. And it was a Commodore 64. Oh, nice. It was like, it was a computer. And we were like, whoa. So we carefully unwrapped it. Uh, we set it up. We played games on it. No. And we put it all back carefully and put it back under the bed. And uh, a couple weeks later, my parents were, they said, well, we're going camping again. Do you want to come? And we're like, no, no. <laughs> my sister, my sister who's older would, was babysitting us. And we didn't want to go camping because as soon as they went away on a Friday, we have two days to play video games. Sure. Put it all back. Anyway, when Christmas, when Christmas comes around, we had the, you know, this is why I'm, you know, I became a good actor. It's like we open it up. Oh, a computer. Oh, I had no idea. We were so excited. Right. And then, and then we immediately set it up and my parents are like, wow, look how fast they put it together. It's because we had done it about a dozen times from October to December. Brilliant. So we played with the computer for two months solid before we even got it before Christmas. And so we had to just pretend. Yeah. We, uh, we finally came clean a number of years ago where we had this, uh, we were chatting with my parents and we told my parents what happened. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We playing with <laughs> video games, but how did they react? Did they, they had no idea. They had no idea. Um, but they, uh, they, you know, it was, it was so, uh, it was so long in the past that they kind of yeah. laughed about yeah, it. And I'm, I'm sure. sure if they found out at the time, we would have been in big trouble, right? <laughs> but in grounded for a year and never allowed to use a computer ever again. Wrapping up, Lee, if you had to go right back to the beginning of your uh, filmmaking journey and get yourself a gift to help you get where you are now, what gift would it be? 
the best gift would have been uh, a, a friendship with Steven Spielberg, right? Someone nice. said, Hey, look, uh, I'm, this is uh, you want, here's Steve. Do you want to hang out with Steve? I'd be like, sure. That would be great. And then, uh, and then I'd learn a lot from Steve and we'd be friends. And uh, if Steve's listening, you know, just, I don't know, send me an email. We can hang, we can still hang out. You know, I don't have to be 12 years old for us to be friends. We can hang out now if you want to. And in case he is listening, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Uh, just go on to Lee at LeeChambers.com. Just, just my name.com, whatever. There's uh, video clips and information about me. Drop me a line if anybody's out there and you want to chat about stuff, whatever. I love supporting the next generation of filmmakers that are out there and giving guidance. I had that when I was starting out. I had people who, who helped me up and gave a hand out and pulled me up to where I am. And so if I can do that for other people, I love doing that. That's great. Lee, it's been great to chat with you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.